At The One Thing, we're always looking for ways to be more productive so we can spend more time focusing on the things that matter most in alignment with our goals. And if you're like me, I'm always looking for ways to be more efficient so I can reinvest that time. That's why you should consider Text Expander, where you can do more with less time. Text Expander is an autocomplete tool that allows your team to eliminate repetitive typing and stay on the same page with just a few keystrokes. Customer responses will be at your team's finger so they have the power to do what they do best and do it faster. With Text Expander, you can quickly reply to emails and chats from a library of responses that you can provide full answers to common questions and issues. Keep your whole team on the same page with access to responses that can be personalized on the fly. Whether it's email, chat, or social media, Text Expander works everywhere and anywhere that your team types. It's that easy. So check out Text Expander for 20% off your first year. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The One Thing Podcast. I'm Chris Dixon. And today we had Mike Michalowicz on the podcast. And Mike has written at least eight books about transformative business concepts and methodologies. And today we talked more about his new book, All In. And he shared a really cool acronym uh, for building unstoppable teams. He called FASO. So finding the right fit, the abilities, the safety of your teams and creating ownership within them so that you can build unstoppable teams. And I think there's a lot of great takeaways from this conversation. So if you want to hear what Mike thinks about recruiting the right talent, transforming employees into superstars, matching individual abilities of your team with the needs of the organization, and how to elevate your company to where every employee cares as much as the owner, then you're going to love this conversation with Mike Michalowicz. So let's go talk to Mike. Mike Michalowicz on the podcast with us today, and he is the entrepreneur behind three multi-million dollar companies. He's also the author of eight business books, including Profit First, which has sold more than 1 million copies, Clockwork, The Pumpkin Plan, and his newest book, which we're really excited to talk about today, All In. Uh, Welcome, Mike. Thanks so much for being here. Excited to talk to you. Yeah, I'm excited to talk with you too, Chris. Thanks for having me on your show. I appreciate it. So tell us a little bit more about your journey and why you seem to be so focused on this challenge and, and this problem and what brought you here today. You know, I, I have a saying I've been using recently, and uh, it goes basically this. I'll be on stage or something. I'll say, you know, they say small business is the backbone of the economy. Speaking of small business owners, never nods your head like, yes, thank you. And then I say, well, I've run the analysis. This is true. I looked at the data, and I say, I hate to say this, but small business is not the backbone of the economy. And then you see the droopy faces. And then I say, small business is not the backbone of the economy. Small business is the economy. And right, and then people <laughs> lose their minds. And but it's the reality. I did all this research and I've identified that every single business in existence started off small, either in a garage as a startup or maybe they got invested in by fund, you know, funding, but it was one person's idea or just a, co- a small collective of people. It's not this massive group of 10,000 people come together and say, we have an idea. It always starts off small. So that's why I believe small business is the economy. <laughs> I lived it myself. I've been a small business owner my entire adult life. I love the experience. It is harrowing and scary and challenging. And I've experienced the roller coaster from, um, for me, significant success and uh, absolute abject failure, uh, losing everything. And I decided that my purpose, I think why I'm put on this planet, is that I need to find 
ways to simplify the entrepreneurial journey. And admittedly, Chris, I think what we teach, what you teach, what I teach is actually what we need to learn. So every book I'm writing is also highly self-reflective in something I'm trying to improve, be it profitability, be it business efficiency, and now with my my new book, uh, Team Leadership. Um, it's something I need to, and, and that's why I write this. And that's why I, I've devoted this. I, I believe for the rest of my life, I'll be writing for small business owners. That's great. It, it keeps you pretty close to the the trends that are happening in the marketplace and what you're experiencing personally. So it's relatable as you write it. So it's, you're coming up on a challenge and I guess you're experiencing some capacity, some challenges in and around yeah, developing I'm, I'm teams it. in leadership, right? So that's, that's where inspiration for this new book comes from. That's right. I, you know, I, I own three companies right now with equity and I have invested in, in some capacity, about another seven to nine companies. And so I'm, I'm intimately connected with these businesses and their success or failure is my success or, or failure. And uh, it's what's interesting is because I'm in such a diverse group of businesses is when something happens on a macro environment like a COVID pandemic, wow, do, you, do I see it ripple through my businesses? But in different ways, um, so, uh, the, the hospitality businesses were collapsing and, and um, some supply businesses got, I wish I was manufacturing toilet paper, like that exploded. <laughs> and you just see these interesting dynamics happening. But I think more importantly, I see what my partners, the, these business leaders, these business owners go through, uh, you know, one-on-one. And, and we have the calls. I remember this one, um, it was like 4 a.m. I'm sitting in, I'm in Germany. I'm talking with a business owner back here. It was around uh, like 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock at night here. On, I'm on the East Coast just in a real bad situation and we're navigating through it. So um, that ultimately means what I feel is I have a privilege of, of having my thumb on the pulse of many small businesses. And then through the work I do as an author, um, my readership community is in constant contact with me. I'm, I'm getting emails every hour from, from somewhere, someone somewhere on this globe giving me a download in their situation or asking for help or, or, or sharing an idea that I could use my own businesses or disperse and share with other people. Um, so I'm, I'm very fortunate. I feel I'm so immersed in small business. I'm definitely not looking from the outside saying, well, here's what we should do, you know, small business owners, but I'm not <laughs> one of you. No, this, this is my life too. I think so many people can relate to challenges. And I mean, leadership's a, is a constant and it's something that that's always yeah. out there, but there's been a spike in, or maybe a gap that's been created that's greater than normal. And I'm curious to hear what you think might be some of the root cause of that, what, which would have ultimately inspired you to, to write this book. But I mean, there's there's obvious things out there. There's big work from home shift. Maybe it's swinging back yeah. now in many cases. I mean, you've got generational stuff happening. There's like these these traps of workplace incentives that have really not produced fruit for us. I mean, what, what are the big things that, that you've run into or seen that may be causing this unusual blip in the challenge of leadership? Yeah, yeah. We have to act differently, betterly, that's not a word, but you know what I'm saying, as leaders. <laughs> I think it should be. It should be betterly. We got to be betterly. Why I wrote All In, there was an inception point, and then the 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 dynamic changed. So the inception point was, I want to say it was five years ago, but now I think, what I really think about it, it's probably seven or 10 years ago. I got a call from a Fortune 500, and um, you know, I'm a small business author, and they said, hey, we want you to come in here and work with our team. Uh, recruiting leadership. And I'm like, 
okay, I think you have the wrong number. And they said, no, no, no. We see what you're doing helping small business. And what was, we're really curious about is how these small businesses are getting talent, like really exceptional people um, that are really driven uh, to serve the company's mission, but also to achieve their own personal goals. How can small business who lacks the financial means, who doesn't have the the, the full suite of benefits, we don't have all those things that entice great people. How come great people are going to small business? We, as this large corporation, need to figure this out because we're losing the small business and we don't know what else to offer. It isn't the ping pong tables. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, this is really an interesting insight. And that triggered me to research this out. And uh, ultimately, I developed this model I call FASO, F-A-S-O, which indicates why great people go to great companies of any size. Well, as I started researching this and, and codifying it, deploying it and testing our own businesses, then you know the, the world changed. It shifted on its axis with uh, the COVID pandemic. And so an environment that we were slowly moving toward with remote stuff, but this kind of old world expectation that people come into work immediately shifted. And uh, we're not going back. Yes, some companies are trying to mandate and require, but the second you have to mandate or demand or require something, when people are forced to comply, they will seek to defy. So that's not sustainable. We have to cater to what people desire. And if, if you're forcing them to comply uh, and, and, and there is no alternative, they will seek employment elsewhere. So the, the COVID pandemic became part of it. Um, and then many stories I was reading in the news about these traditional command and control structures where the, the leader of the company says, this is what we're doing. It kind of flushes down and uh, everyone's expected to behave a certain way, but this is a person that's not involved watching from the outside. So all those things weren't working or, or changing or shifting. And so that's what caused me to, to conceive this book and address this. I think the employment environment we're in now and the leadership environment is is in this best position ever. I think we are positioned for extraordinary improvement and change for, for the leaders who adopt it. Um, and that's why I, I think All In is, is timed nicely to serve that movement. Yeah, I love it. Can you tell me a little bit more about uh, FASO, F-A-S-O, and yeah, yeah, yeah. what that looks like? Yeah. Ooh, I got all excited. Yeah, I can, I can go on for hours. <laughs> yeah. So the FASO um, is an acronym, F-A-S-O. It's the model I documented, but it already existed, but I just pulled in the piece and said, oh, I see how this works together. That is a way to recruit extraordinary talent, to retain an extraordinary people and talent, and to raise the bar for the entire organization. F stands for fit. It's the first stage. And ironically, most businesses don't even really consider about this, but it's the true intrinsic needs the organization has. What most businesses have done historically is they've identified an organizational chart, usually a pyramid-like structure, and they have all these titles. There's a president or a CEO. There are some other C-suite folks. It depends on the size of the business. Even even microenterprise with like two or three people has a CEO and the COO. And there's a structure put here. And what many of these businesses were doing was a command and control environment. And when it came to finding people to fit in, you know, president, who would be a good, maybe marketing person? And so what we were doing is we were matching people's talent to a title. And that was the mistake I saw. 
people come on and maybe be really good at something, but not be able to fulfill other obligations in that role. And then we're being maybe terminated or, or let go in some capacity. I'll give you an example. Because I did this. My own business, this is a few businesses back. We needed to hire a receptionist. We had many people physically coming into our office. While we identified the role of a receptionist, and the receptionist would have to greet people who walk in, answer the phones, but also that didn't happen all the time, so data entry and other components. A person came on, and uh, it was a woman. She was amazing at uh, that quick personal bonding. So when someone came in or she answered the phone, you felt a sense of comfort and she would take care of you. But then when it came to data entry and she had, we had her doing some accounting, it was a nightmare. That just was not her skill set. And so we said, gosh, we, we don't have the right receptionist. I guess we have to let her go. Well, at the same time, I was evaluating one of our salespeople who was a closer. She was amazing at closing the deal. She sucked at the relationship, though. She couldn't farm if her life depended on it. It's only when we had a, an opportunity in our grasp would be she be the one we send in. And she was meticulous in tracking the, the accounts once we had them on board. And we said, oh, this is it. Let's take our salesperson title and actually move her into the right roles. Great at data, data entry tracking. She could be doing our accounting work. Great at closing, but not personable. Let's take our receptionist who's personable and have her be our frontline salesperson. So what we started to do, and this is what you do in FIT, is you understand all the roles you have in your organization, and you match people with their talents to the tasks, not the titles. What comes out of this now is like a web-like structure. So instead of that pyramid mm. structure, you have people touching different parts and communicating with different people in the organization, and becomes a web-like structure, which in nature, by the way, a web-like structure is the most superior strength uh, structure, and it's also very flexible. And so that that kind of speaks to the type of organization, flexibility, redundancy, strength. So that's the first part of FASO. I like that. I mean, it makes sense when you say flexible before you, you, you went back to it. I said that that really stood out for me because it allows your organization to be more flexible. And instead of traditionally trying to fit a square peg into a round hole inside of your org structure, saying, hey, let's look at the talent we have on our team and what their strengths are that's right. and what potentially would fulfill them in the workplace in balance and, and, and adapt that to just the overall list of things that must be accomplished instead of a person or job description that there was research is fixed. that so came it, out it of the UK. I don't remember the source. And this is going to be shocking. But when people do, when you and I do what we like to do, we do it better than the stuff we don't like to do. No, that's the shocking truth. Yeah, go figure. But, but the research yeah, go figure. supports this. <laughs> and what our job as a leader is to find out what people are naturally talented toward, what they naturally enjoy to do, and fit them within the organization that way. It's not these cut-in-the-box, square-peg-round-hole situations like you said. It is much more morphic. And great leaders recognize that and do that. So the, the takeaway here, again, is match talent to task, not to title. Is there a, a, a balance to be aware of or a, an edge that you could perhaps yeah. fall off of with, so with being So if the business has to the modify what it's offering to cater to what employees are capable, most capable of or talented at, and the business starts changing, that's the problem. So it's kind of like mm. a, um, the, the business structure or, or offering suite must stay consistent because otherwise you start modifying. Now you have to cater to different clients and it becomes very dangerous. It, it's too amoebic-like. So you want to keep the 
structure, the box yeah. of the organization and put people in and let them flow in the way they naturally fit. The realization here is sometimes you will have people who are expressing mm. a talent of sorts that is extraordinary, but not a fit for your organization. And that's where a great leader will recognize that and turn them on to another opportunity, even if it's outside the business to serve that. And I'll give you an example. We had a, a, a person here who was filling among different roles uh, the scheduling responsibilities for me. That's one of the tasks we need taken care of. Her name was Lisa, and she was good at it. She wasn't great at it, but she was good at it. It just wasn't her thing. It was very detailed, and it was very dynamic. It shifted by sometimes by the hour or by the minute. But what we found during interviews, we, we could do ongoing interviews, by the way. That's another technique. So you interview when you hire, but you also continually interview when people are on board. Um, we call them one-on-ones, just dialogues. And it came out that she had this passion for firefighting. She was a volunteer firefighter and so forth. Um, and we're like, wow, we, we have an extraordinary firefighter here who is a scheduler. So step one is how do we make the scheduling more like a 911 schedule because that's what a firefighter gets involved in so it can give her a taste of it. Second step is ultimately she's a fit not for here but for somewhere else. And she ended up uh, working for an airport in Georgia. She's an airport firefighter and loving it. But I think the ultimate uh, expression of why this was the right move and served us, our company does an annual retreat. Lisa asked our president, Kelsey, uh, I like to come back on my own dime and on my own time to be at the retreat to support our organization because we have a great organization. She still saw it as part of her. It was still our organization. And she was willing to come back and participate. And she did extraordinary things in giving us direction, even though she no longer was employed by us. So that's what a great leader will do is when the fit is elsewhere, they'll recognize that and, and support that. Mm. Help them transition to a place that will help them be more fulfilled and that fits their needs, which which makes perfect sense. And so if the, the kind of lagging indicator is that you're having to shift the structure of the business to adapt for the needs of the organization or the, the team members, right. then you're probably being too flexible um, and what you can right, catch right, that yeah, on. yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Just like everything else, there's a yin and yang here. We need to bring that balance. But if you're if you're modifying your organization to cater to your team, that's when you probably uh, need to find a better fit for your team. Yeah. yeah. Do you do you see that there's also a benefit in approaching your 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 talent arrangement this way and and in the fit uh, in the fit model that gives them some authorship and where they're spending their time that creates more buy-in and, and more fulfillment in the workplace? Yes. So uh, in this model, um, F-A-S-O, FASO, O stands for ownership. So let's let's jump the bridge over there. Okay. In my research, uh, I found that uh, the, one of the most common things I heard from employees, um, from business owners, leaders, is I wish my employees would act like owners, you know, act like me. And so I was like, oh, what, what this concept of ownership? Well, there was research that was started in the 1980s. There was this guy named John Pierce. He was the authority in the space. It's expanded, called psychological ownership, which is different than legal ownership. So legal ownership is where I have stock in a business or something. Um, but, but psychological ownership is where my mind uh, sees me as part of the business and the business is part of me. So what we want to do is invoke, to your point, psychological ownership. And um, psychological ownership comes about in three ways. One is giving people control, authority, direction, right? So if, if people can lean into what they want to do, they have a greater sense of ownership over it. 
Another one is the ability to personalize it, to make it about them or involve them, integrate them. And the last one is that they have control, uh, meaning they have the ability to give it direction. So the, the ability to have knowledge, intimate knowledge, to personalize it, uh, oh, and control. So I may have not said, I may have said control twice, but intimate knowledge, knowing something in detail is the other one. I'll give you an example just because it makes it real simple is with, with cars, renting a car versus owning a car and how we behave. When someone rents a car, you know, you go through that DMZ uh, checkout, it's crazy, you know, sirens and spikes and all this stuff. You show your license a hundred times. They tell you, fill the tank, uh, no scratches, clean interior, uh, and, and limited certain miles or where you can go. When when people, and I said this earlier, when, when we're forced to comply, we will seek to defy. So when I take a rental car out, the second I get to that traffic light, my God, I cannot wait for it to turn green. I'm going to see if these wheels spin. <laughs> and uh, I'll do donuts in the parking lot, and I'll jam on the brakes coming in to a red light. I will definitely uh, be more abusive of it. Now, if I own a car, um, I will absolutely care for it much more. I, I, I won't abuse it in that way. I'll, I'll get the car washed. I'll never wash a rental. I'll take all these actions because I own it. But here's what's fascinating. I don't own my car. The bank owns my car. I'm making the payments on it. So I don't have legal ownership. I have what's called psychological ownership because I have control. I decide when and where I'm going to drive it. I have the ability to personalize it. I can put dice on the rear view mirror. I can tune the radio stations to the stations that I want and are my stations. I can set the car seat the way I want. Um, so, and I, and I have uh, control and knowledge. I know it in detail. I know the business, the, the uh, vehicle intimately. I know the, the, the nail that's stuck in the tire right now. That's not leaking. Thank God. <laughs> For yet <laughs> all those things, all those things give me ownership. And so mm-hmm. that's what we need to do with our employees. Give them the opportunity to gain more and more knowledge about something, to have control over its direction and personalize it. And they will act like owners. Yeah, there's something we say a lot. And I, I like to say a lot is you know, authorship equals ownership. And so giving giving your team the opportunity to have authorship in their role, the business plan, right. direction will help them feel a sense of ownership versus having a very command and comply approach towards, hey, you need to act like an owner. You're just not going to speak, right. speak to people that way. They're, they're, not, they're not going to hear you um, instead of taking an approach of helping them actually build what is the, the piece of the business that, that they own. That's right, Chris. One of the uh, great reveals is when you hear an employee, a colleague saying, this is mine or this is ours are signs of psychological ownership. So this is my job. This is our company are all indicators of that. But when they say this is the job or this is your company, they are actually disassociating with them with it psychologically. So look for those indicators. And to your point, you can't force, you can't say, you have to act like an owner. You have to give them the opportunity to experience that ownership psychologically. It seems like, at least from my experience and and from the outside looking into other organizations, that there's more of a headwind around ownership than there has been in the past. And, and it could yeah. be somewhat of a generational thing. I mean, we had this whole quiet quitting pop up yes. and people saying like, look, I'm going to do exactly what I'm asked to do and nothing more. And even that's going to be a fight. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. So if, if ever now is a time where you really need to shift your focus towards this and how you create ownership within your teams. I, uh, I write about quiet quitting in the book. Uh, and I was actually a quiet quitter. I, I sold one of my companies to a uh, Fortune 500, acquired a business I had many years ago. And when I arrived, I'll I'll never forget this. 
I, I came to the new office. I was excited. We sold a business. I'm an employee now of a big company. Never done that before. This is cool. And they said, hey, this is where you sit. And it was a cubicle or something. I said, oh, okay. But I said, the rest of the team's over there. Can I sit in the cube over there? And the person scoffed and said, you're not that level yet. And they they had spent um, 24 months of due diligence and research to acquire a company. And within 24 hours, they had lost my heart. Mm-hmm. And then I left the business about a year later. But within a day, I was out. I was out. And that became a quiet quitting scenario. You know, you, you always lose your employee in two stages, heart, then body. And uh, it's the leader's responsibility to keep that heart engaged, to be catering to that those needs they have. And that's actually other parts of the model in FASO. So we talk about ownership and fit, giving people a sense of safety. That's the S in it. And, and, and leveraging their abilities are ways that you'll keep the heart engaged at the highest levels. It's heart. And what was the second you said? Oh, so in FASO, it was it's fit, ability, and safety. So the heart stays engaged when we're giving or letting people express their abilities, and there's different types of abilities, and giving them a sense of safety, a real right. sense of safety. Right. Oh, so yeah. Those well, you, you, the way you said it though, it resonated with me because there's, in my experience, like if you can win over somebody's heart, as you say, then you can move into the next phase of that, which there's. I've had some experience, a positive experience with as well. Sometimes there's the challenge or I can't think of a better word at the moment. It's not hazing, but there's like a, there's something where you have to like overcome challenge with the team to demonstrate that you deserve to be there in a way. But if you lead with that without first winning over somebody's heart, that they're, you might shut them off or turn them away. But there's, there's something to making people feel like they have to earn a place at the table, but you as an, a leader need to make sure that you're fighting to win them over as well. Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I was in a fraternity in college and they use that protocol. And a lot of organizations do is you have to exert an effort to qualify because once you qualify, you realize you've exerted an effort. It actually affirms why you're here. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're more devoted once you get in. What was interesting about me and my situation when I got hired was I was put in a spot because that's what they that's the blank they were looking to fill in. They said, you're going to sit there. It didn't make sense. It wasn't like, Mike, we want you to prove your loyalty to the company. Uh, it wasn't any of those components in order to sit with the rest of your team. Same with my team brought about the biggest strength that I saw, but they were inflexible in that regard. They just said, no, you, you fill in the blank here. That's your spot. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't make sense uh, for you, but this is what we require of you. And uh, that lost me. You know, A fraternity or sorority or anything these other organizations, you're actually looking to form, you know, that brotherhood. You're showing devotion to the greater group. And I was trying to show my devotion to the greater group by being able to sit with these people, learn, listen in, be supportive, but they were excluding me from that, you know, brotherhood, if you will. Yeah. That's so interesting. There's, you know, that show is out on Netflix recently about the, uh, septuagenarians that with the blue zones, I think it's called in these areas, these, oh, yeah, pockets, yeah, yeah, yeah. these pockets of places yeah. where people live to be a hundred more than statistically more than other places. And I wonder for, cause the community was a big component of that. And, and I sure. think like exercise and, you know, challenge and community and all of that. And yeah. I, 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 there's probably parallels to sustainable organizations and people who will stick around inside of an organization to some of that in a weird way. Cause you are getting challenged regularly, but you have a strong yes. sense of community. 
and you feel yes. like you have ownership in the business's success, then you're likely to stick around a long time. I would say there's no question about it. So the A in FASO, so we talked about fit, we talked about ownership, but the mm-hmm. ability is actually the expression of potential. So I can explain that, but it'll, when you, you when you put people in a position where they are challenged, but in a way they want to be challenged, that's where loyalty is stemmed from. So I'll break that down for us real quickly. Um, there's three types of abilities that people have. Most businesses only consider one, more evolved businesses consider two, and I've yet to find any business, I shouldn't say any, very few that consider the biggest and most important one, which is the third one. So first is experiential ability. And experiential ability is your historical proof of capability. You know, I uh, am proficient at words, so it goes on my resume. I, you know, I speak a second language, it goes on my resume. Um, I, you know, I program. Those things are things I demonstrated in the past to have proficiency, and the expectation is, oh, if you were good at it then, you're probably good at it now, which is not necessarily true. People bluff and lie, um, which is not appropriate, but they do. Um, the other thing they do is um, that ability they had back then has not been uh, maintained and it goes away. So yeah, you could you were a programmer back in the day, but uh, that language is no longer used in programming. And yeah, it's perishable. That's a great choice of words. That's called experiential ability. Most businesses put 80% of their hiring consideration in that. The other consideration is innate ability. Now, this is stuff that's revealed through systems like, you know, Myers-Briggs and DISC and Enneagram, all these powerful tools out there. It shows what our natural propensities are, someone that's a a starter or someone that's really detail-oriented. That's an absolute soft skill that we need to consider. And and it's sad how few businesses measure that, but more are, which is wonderful. But in the middle of this is the biggest thing that very few businesses consider, and it's potential, potential ability. Potential is what could this person do in the future given the opportunity? So potential, of course, is invisible. How do you find it? And uh, I'll I'll do it through an example that I use in the book. I talk about um, Eddie Van Halen, who has, unfortunately, he's passed away. But say, Chris, you and I, let's start an 80s rock band. We're going to do all these 80s tunes. We need a guitarist that's amazing. Why don't we ask Eddie Van Halen to join us? Well, Eddie would say, no, no way. He's got his own band, Van Halen. Uh, he's doing okay financially. Like he, he would scoff at our consideration. And yet that's what many companies are doing. We're looking for the that, that star candidate who has this experiential proven ability. But imagine this, Eddie Van Halen, what if we approached him when he was 12 years old? That's when he first really got into the guitar. He moved from the Netherlands to the US, started to play guitar. He was expressing potential. Well, he'd be wonderful to get then, but of course, the question is, how do you know Eddie Van Halen is going to be Eddie Van Halen? There's probably countless kids like that. Well, the technique is to run a workshop or sometimes a a camp. What this is, is an opportunity for people to express their potential. So if if you and I said, hey, um, we're going to have a guitar workshop, maybe we bring in another guitarist and hire them to to teach it because I don't play that well. And maybe bring them in and say, hey, Eddie, you can come to this workshop. We're going to teach you how to play a guitar, and we're going to teach all these other kids. Eddie would likely show up. He was so interested in guitar. Yeah, he'd show up and take lessons. But now the opportunity is for us to observe him. Potential ability always reveals itself in three ways. First, from curiosity. If someone raised their hand and said, I'd be interested in that, they're demonstrating curiosity. It doesn't mean they're going to be good at it, but it's the first step to potential. The next one is desire. Once Eddie's there, is he the one who's listening closely, learning, trying to demonstrate repeating, practicing over and over again, that's desire. 
the highest level of potential is thirst. Thirst is where I can't quit it. Our job, if we're running these workshops, is to see which kids are more than curious, are showing desire, and is any kid really stepping up and thirsty, uh, practicing extremely hard, coming in early, uh, repeating the process. And that's how we could have found Eddie Van Halen. Now, now here's the thing. This isn't just a concept. This is used in, in practice all the time in a multi-billion dollar industry. It's in the sports industry. Um, co college football teams, they have camps all the time with students uh, that come in and demonstrate their skills and learn new skills. But the power of a camp is what's so interesting to me is every single student athlete gets better. We, the employer, uh, get an opportunity to cherry pick the ones that are fit for us. In traditional interviewing, it's just the one person we think is a good fit and everyone else doesn't even know why they didn't get hired. In camps, everyone's getting better, but the people with the most thirst and demonstrating the most potential are the ones who get you know tapped on the shoulder and brought in. And then I just want to give one last little example. It's a it's a business example. Home Depot does this. Next time you go to a Home Depot and you see a sign up saying, "Hey, we have a, a workshop on building a birdhouse or something. Bring your kid or, or come on your own." What they're doing is they're using that as a recruiting platform, and people don't know it. You go there, you build your workshop. Yeah, sure, you're ingratiated with the store. Sure, they want you to buy stuff from them, but they're observing the participants and seeing who is the most participative. Who, what parent is helping other parents? And they tap that person on the shoulder and say, you really showed interest in this. Have you ever considered working at Home Depot? We'd love to have you. So mm. workshops give us an ability to review or see potential ability, and then we can recruit those people. That's awesome. Yeah, and I mean, you see there's demonstrated success in this, like you said, in the sports world. I mean, soccer clubs and or football clubs yeah. come to mind. Um, as a place where they farm talent and they get to see all the things you just mentioned and you, everybody has visibility into the, the person's total skill set. Uh, so I had, I had a question. So inside of ability, you talked about experiential, innate, and then potential. And then inside of potential, it was curiosity, desire, and thirst. And where do you, inside right. of curi potential, um, I'm assuming this is where it would fall, inside of the curiosity, desire, and thirst, where would you put receptivity to feedback as a, as a, a trait? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You'll see that in desire, right? Okay. So curiosity, mm -hmm. like if you said, "Hey, Mike, uh, I think about going skydiving," I'm like, "Hey, I've always thought about that." Okay, I'll do one. That raising the hand is simply curiosity. But uh, I, I may change my opinion when we're starting to load up on the airplane, or maybe, maybe somehow I get pushed out and I actually do it once. I think I would never do it again. It just doesn't feel like it's right for me. The the person who does it and says, "You know, I want to do it again." That's where feedback comes in. And we say, hey, um, when, you, when you left, um, we want you to know that you were not holding the right form and that causes a wind shear or whatever. Uh, do it again. And people with desire will listen and say, oh, well, let me try to improve that. So feedback starts at the desire level and, and it continues through the thirst level. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, interesting, Eddie Van Halen. Eddie Van Halen had a piano teacher. He was learning piano. And his piano teacher noticed one day, he said, hey, Eddie, um, you're doing great, but I don't think you're reading the music. He goes, no, I, I can't read the music. The teacher actually thought he was teaching reading music. The teacher, and this is so smart, said, you don't need music. You can do this one by ear. And, and didn't give feedback to force the structure, gave feedback to say, oh, you have an opportunity to actually go even further without reading. And uh, he never learned to read music and plays guitar wickedly well. Yeah, yeah, one of the best, if not 
you know, top three, yeah. something like that. That's great. Now, yeah, I, well, yeah, yeah. You know, for, yeah, everyone has their own opinion. Sure, I think. sure. Yeah, for sure. It, I, I just, I zoomed in on receptivity to feedback because yeah. in inside of potential, that's something I've always looked for. Uh, and if I, if I could identify that and it makes sense and desire that, that, that totally makes sense. But if I could always identify that there was, if they had the desire and the thirst and the curiosity and they were willing to take feedback well, then I felt like they could grow I, yeah, into totally whatever agree. the role was, totally even agree. if they weren't quite there yet. Faso, we talked about fit, uh, ability and ownership, but the S safety, can we, yeah. can we talk a little bit about people, safety and what that when means you for you? and I can express ourselves fully without concern of retribution or uh, embarrassment or compromise, uh, we will perform our best. And there's different forms of safety. So there's, first of all, physical safety. This is where, uh, could you imagine someone's over your shoulder with a, with a knife at your throat saying, okay, uh, work well. C- can you focus on your work? Uh, you know, we're sweating out. Like, what's this person going to do? It's, it's a terrifying time. So physical safety, physical harm compromises our ability to perform. And so obvious Yet it's not always addressed in work environments. So um, one may be simply we have a parking lot for our own office here down the street, but you have to go down a dark alley um, to to get to this street. While there's never been a crime, some of our employees here feel very uh, concerned about that. And so when they come in to work, they're like, later this afternoon, I have to leave down the dark alley, and it becomes a concern. Um, So as a leader of the team, I have to be aware of that. That is a safety concern. Um, then another form of safety is financial safety. Um, and this, this all comes from Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We need physical safety. We need some security in our finances to know that we can bring mm. ourselves a degree of comfort. Now, I'm not saying that a business needs to keep on paying an employee more and more. We, we do need to pay an employee what that position's valued at, what, what the worth is, of course, as long as we can afford it. But a company also has a responsibility to assure the uh, employees of its own financial security, open books. Uh, many companies keep them keep the books tight, and then one day they come in and say, "We're in real trouble. Uh, we need to let some people go." And now the employer's like, "Well, what else is in trouble?" Like it, it puts us on this constant edge. So I'm not saying a company's always going to be fiscally healthy. We're going to go through a sawtooth experience. I surely have during tough times. We're like, "Hey, we're going through a tough period, and this is how we're navigating it." When things are good, we're saying, "Hey, things are good," and we're squirreling away for tough times but we're very open book about it. So people have a sense of security because they have a sense of control. For me, there's a really clear tie to ownership in that regard uh, from experience where I've worked with some organizations that were in a tough place and and chose to go the path of, of transparency with their books. And you had team members who were stepping up in ways that they, they wouldn't have otherwise because they may not have even known they needed to and just taking ownership over things differently because they felt like they or a part of the solution. And that's a, a piece that I just wanted to call out. I think so significant that not only does it help people feel safe, but it also, you can provide a level of ownership and authorship by letting people see, and you never know where they're going to step up and you wouldn't have known otherwise. 100% true and, and necessary. Um, there are some other safety components. It's it's a emotional safety and relational safety. Mm-hmm. I think I can kind of blend those together, but do I feel safe in being my true self in my environment? And uh, when people don't, um, they start bringing a different person to work than they do at home, and there's this disconnect. Um, and therefore, we can't be fully expressed for ourselves. So a leader, um, first of all, wants to and should bring about that diversity and sharing, and usually has to do it by sharing themselves. 
revealing, hey, this is who I am as a human. Let's learn about each other as a human so that we feel in total comfort. And there's situations where people have left employment because they didn't feel safe with the relationships there. And no one was intentionally trying to harm this person or exclude this person. They just didn't feel they fit in. And then people will leave. So we need to give people that safety, emotional safety and relational safety by ourselves participating that as a leader in that as a leader. Makes total sense. So fit, you need, you need to find ways to make your team members fit within the organization that leverages their skills, ability, emotional, innate, potential, heavy focus on potential. You mentioned yeah. created an environment of safety. And then how can you have your team members take ownership and the success of the business? And that's the FASO. That's right. And I, I think, uh, great leaders focus on this holistic approach now with their teams. I do want to share, I'm not suggesting that great leaders are wishy-washy and allow, you know, everyone do what you want as long as you're happy. Uh, and then there's this, this anarchy that comes about. We have to work within the structure of the organization. Um, but we do have the ability to allow people to express their greatest selves by using this model. Mm. I know I know. one of the, the things that you aim to to enhance with the book is is recruitment and finding the right talent is there is there anything more that you would offer with with recruiting from your experience i mean obviously you talked about the workshops and that's a way to 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 farm talent and and even from within your own team but what else should entrepreneurs be thinking about when it comes to recruitment to build a team that is transformative yeah so market the environment, not just the job tasks. So, you know, in traditional advertisements, you'll see, you know, computer operator needed, must have seven years of experience, blah, blah, blah. Why not say, you know, love Star Wars, we're geeks too. Um, looking for someone mm. to work on our computers. And then express what your environment's like. The thing is, when, when we do something like that, it breaks the mold of the common and the right person will say, finally, there's someone who's like me. I, you know, I love Star Wars too. So be expressive of your corporate culture and your environment in your advertising and you'll attract people that are a much greater fit right from the get-go. Mm. I mean, it ties back to that need to create community or foster community That's inside right. of your business. That's right. I, and I'm excited about that because specifically I emphasize that over culture. And I, I want to differentiate these. Culture is, is critical, but it's self-forming. I think how some leaders consume culture is, I'm going to set a standard of rules that I believe in, and this is going to be our standard, and we're going to recruit people accordingly. What I found is the community itself brings about a all-inclusive culture. So I'll give you a very personal example. My own company, uh, I had a have a value that says, no dicks allowed which is kind of cheeky, it's kind of funny, but it's a standard that I won't behave in that way toward others and I don't, it won't permit others to treat me that way. So I shared with my team, like, this is the value. And then someone came back and said, Mike, that is so bro-y, uh, not a fit here. I was like, wow. And when we talked with the community, now our community is eight employees here. But when I talked to my team, the feedback was, let's be the Ted Lasso. Ted Lasso's hot on TV right now. And like that's yeah. who we are, the, the eternal optimist. And out goes the no dicks allowed, and in comes the be the Ted Lasso. And I think 10 years from now, it may not be that anymore. It's more morphic. 
So culture is an expression of community. And what we need to do as leaders is build a diverse community and seek what the common values are from it. And that boils up to be our culture. Yeah, that's so, that's so good. It's difficult because if you focus on culture first and you've seen, I'm sure you've experienced this a million times and I know I have where you try to force create it and it's just something that almost feels like it needs to happen organically, but you can right. foster it is what you're saying or what I'm hearing. You can foster the development of an organic community through the development of community or culture. That's exactly excuse me. right. Yeah. And, and versus trying to say, hey, here's our culture on the wall and no one's bought into it. Right. right. And people don't buy into it because they don't have ownership over it. It's funny mm. when it, we we're talking about ownership, the ability to have intimate knowledge, control, personalization. When someone has their own idea voiced, they're much more likely to believe in it than if they hear the same idea from someone else because they had the control of voicing it and so forth. So when it comes to community, it's a collective uh, extraction or participation of every individual, there's ownership into it. So that's why community is so important and brings about these kind of cultural standards. And, they, and they're morphic. They change over time as your community changes. Yeah, that makes sense. So you've got, if, if you're a, someone's listening and they're a new entrepreneur or even experienced, but they've got a relatively developing team and they, they're trying to raise the bar for their team members, transform them into superstars from, from where they are. Is there anything else that you'd offer for them from your experience that would help start to foster some of that development? Yes. I, I think just I wanted to give a little mental shift is that everyone you consider, be it employees or contractors, part-time or full, subs or not, is that everyone has a potential. I mean, everyone is mm -hmm. an A star in waiting or A player. I, uh, I ran a survey. I do this informally, but I've been doing it a lot now. With live audiences, I'll say, hey, to the few hundred people, sometimes a thousand people in the room, who here is an A player? Every hand goes up. I would say 95% of the hands go up in every audience I've spoke with, employees or otherwise. And I say, okay, um, how or what percentage of the environment are A players? And the numbers come back 3%, 5%, the most is like 10%. And I'm like, isn't this interesting? We're all A players in this room, yet we think less than 10% are A players this must be some kind of statistical anomaly happening here. Like, what's going on? And I say, let me reconcile this. I believe everyone here is an A player because you are you have control and authority. You're doing what you want to do. I believe everyone has A potential. If we give the opportunity for people to express their true selves, to give them control, uh, the intimate knowledge, personalization over what they do, they will be A players. If people can express them true, their true selves. Going back to Eddie Van Halen, what if I hired Eddie Van Halen to be an administrator here? Would he have been good? I don't know. He may have even sucked. I, I don't know. Because his true potential was in playing guitar. A great leader is listening very closely to where someone's potential is and directs them, directs them there. And then they become that rock star that they always were. So mm. my argument to, to new businesses, everyone you're considering is an A player in waiting. They may not be an A player for your organization. And that's where fit comes in. But they are. So uh, go into that consideration and it will open your eyes, I think, in a much greater way. It's interesting. It, it, there's this concept of A players, impact players is another, another way it's been yeah. described and in and, and book about it. And it's, it's shifting your mindset a little bit in your opinion from there's some people who are going to be impact players and others that are not or A players or not to everyone is. You just need to make sure that you're pointing them towards the place they're going to lean in and, and become that A player. 
Yeah. Yeah. That, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Okay, great. Well, if you could have our listeners take away one thing from the conversation today that would help them in the development of their business or, or anything, what would that be? Great leaders are the, the heartbeat of a great organization. And uh, I think we can all step into it. We all have leadership roles, but particularly if you're a small business, particularly if you're a startup business. Um, you know, I talk to entrepreneurs all the time and I say that the number one job of an entrepreneur is not to do the job, it's to be the creator of jobs. And in the beginning, we have to do the work, but there are people looking for good jobs with good companies. And that's what you can, you can do by being a great leader. It's awesome. If listeners want to check out your book or listen to you, I think you have a podcast too, if they want to listen to your podcast or just find you in general, where can they hunt you down? Yeah, so the podcast is called Entrepreneurship Elevated. To get the book, go to allinbymike.com, allinbymike.com. You can find it at any bookstore, too. A copy of it somewhere behind there. It is, it's over my shoulder there. Um, but allinbymike.com. At the website, I have the free resources for the book, some other bonus material for free, and uh, you can also purchase the book through the site. Awesome, Mike. Thanks so much for having this conversation today. There's so much great stuff to take away. And for you guys listening, go go get the book and check out the free resources on your website. I'm sure you have a lot you'll take away from it. Chris, thank you very much. My pleasure. All right. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to The One Thing Podcast. If you're a bold risk taker who wants to dream big and achieve a higher level of success in your life or business, visit theonething.com. There you'll find information on one-on-one coaching, our exclusive community membership program, and customized workshops that will help you get your team or organization aligned and rowing in the same direction. That's T-H-E, the number one, dot com to start living the life you've always dreamed of today. Be sure to follow the show to stay up to date on weekly episodes, guest interviews, and more. Plus, we would love to hear from you. Send us a voice note by going to speakpipe.com slash the one thing or email us at podcast at the one thing.com. We'll see you next week.